Tonight we'll be looking at Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Again, that's Romans chapter 16, verse 20. It's been a bit of a strange week, at least it has for me. I'm not sure about for you all, but uh, there's been, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote of uh, something called the law of undulation. And he spoke of the reality of the Christian life being something that is a pattern of hills and valleys. But I have to think that what C.S. Lewis had in mind was probably more of a gentle sloping uh, hill and valley kind of diagram. This week has felt a lot like an EKG with uh, a lot of ups and downs. Uh, it's, it's been a great time of joy. Uh, there's, there's graduations going on. I have friends in seminary who are finishing. There's great rejoicing. The, the school's out for summer. Can I get an amen? There's great joy. But this week has also been mixed with great sadness. There's been unexpected transition in some of our lives. And there's been a significant loss. In our own denomination, as John referenced this morning, we lost two dear saints. Three, actually. Uh, two well-known. One I do not know. But we were met with particularly those deaths this week. And then even on our street, we had a neighbor uh, whose husband passed away as well. And so it's, it's been a strange week, to say the least. Uh, that joy uh, uh, has been mixed with a, a sense of sadness. And that, that's caused me to be uh, somewhat reflective, uh, thinking back over the course of this year and even thinking forward to the future and the changes that are coming. And uh, not all of us are, are, are good at change. Uh, some of us think we're better at adapting to change than we actually are. But change is unnerving. And, of course, death always brings grief, even in spite of the hope that we have uh, as Christians. But as I reflected on these events, I, I was struck particularly by the profound nature of our hope in the gospel. Because in weeks like this, this is a microcosm of the Christian life, isn't it? That, that our lives are full of events that cause us great joy and, and, and bring about great rejoicing. But our lives are also full of events which, which, which bring great sadness and grief. This is the, this is the Christian life. But in, into that, into the undulation of our lives, comes the steady and steadfast hope and substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I was reading, uh, particularly Butler's uh, post on Facebook, uh, his tribute to Tim Keller. At the end of that post, there was a quote that just struck me in the midst of my reflections. It's something that Keller would say often and reference often in his sermons um, and, and some, sometimes in his books as well. It's a, it's a quote from the Lord of the Rings, and it's, it's this. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Now, Keller formulates this into a statement in the original Lord of the Rings context, it actually comes as a question. So those of you that are familiar with the story, it's uh, out of the return of the king. And at the end, really after the great battle, after everything is kind of done, Frodo, one of the main characters, asks Gandalf. I know those are strange names if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But Frodo asks Gandalf, he says, so what happens now? What, what, what happens? The battle's over. Is everything sad going to come untrue? He poses it as a question. 
But Keller takes Gandalf's answer and then turns that phrase into a statement. And what Gandalf says back is profound. He says, a great uh, darkness uh, has departed. And of course, those of you that know the story of the Lord of the Rings, you know in The Return of the King, of course, in the movies, they, they portray this well. Gandalf says, right, now come the days of the king. And those days are full of peace and rest and prosperity. So Keller takes that sentiment and he applies it to this statement and says, that this, the, the gospel is this, that everything sad is one day going to come untrue. And that really struck me uh, this week. And it struck me particularly in correlation with this verse. Uh, you, some of you know I've been teaching through Romans. Uh, I just finished teaching through Romans for my students at Bime. And this verse came at so fitting a time. We were kind of rushing through, uh, passing along, trying to, get through the, uh, the, the, trying to get through the end of Romans. My students were paying very little attention. And I was trying to be steadfast but growing more discouraged by the minute. And this verse which is just at the very end of Romans here, you would, you would miss it if you're not looking closely. It, it, it comes breaking into that, uh, that, that reading, that class reading that we're doing. And it just made me pause. And I thought, yes, this is the hope of the gospel. Let me read this text for you here. It says this, very short. Romans sixteen twenty, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I stood there thinking, this is the substance of our hope. This is, this is, the, this is the gospel. And it expanded my, it expanded my vision. It, it helped me in that moment to think beyond the circumstances of my little four-walled classroom that smells like stinky ninth and tenth graders. <laughs> It expanded my vision to this cosmic reality that what's going on, what's happening here is so little about me and about teaching these students. It's so much more than that. It's a great cosmic battle that's going on. And I know that even in my futile efforts, victory is being achieved not because of me, but through Christ in and through me. And so my my desire tonight is that your vision would too be expanded. That the reality of this cosmic hope here would, 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 would break into your life, which may feel mundane, which may feel insignificant. And you'll consider the circumstances and trials and difficulties and even the joys of, of, the, of the life that you're living here. And you'll be able to view that in the scope of God's uh, redemptive plan for all of mankind, which I think is just perfectly encapsulated in this verse. So tonight, my hope, my hope is that you will be inspired by this cosmic hope. So let me pray to that end as we enter in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in moments of pain and difficulty and trial, when we feel, Lord, uh, that, that, that our, our vision is narrowed and we can't see beyond our circumstances, that you remind us again that you are working all things along this golden thread of redemption to bring all of history to this culminating moment in which, Lord, we, united to Christ, will gain the victory over Satan. Oh, Lord, inspire us, encourage us with this truth tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I I want to make a few brief comments about really four sections that are given in this one verse here. And those four sections are these. First, uh, we have the God of peace. We have the God of peace will crush Satan. The God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. The God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. 
soon. So there's just four parts of this one verse here, uh, full of rich theology that we're going to look at tonight. The God of peace will crush Satan under our feet and soon. Now, Paul uses this title, God of peace, throughout uh, his epistles. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a title that he uses to describe God, and it's common, and so it's not unexpected. But I think what is unexpected and what's striking about the way that he uses it here is that he connects this title of God, being the God of peace, with actually a particularly violent action, right? What is the God of peace actually doing? The God of peace is wrangling, is strangling, is crushing, is trampling on the head of Satan. And so it's quite striking, and, and it, it took me aback when I was studying it, to see here that the God of peace is the one who's described as, as crushing, violently crushing the head of Satan. And I think that contained in this title, there's, there's a number of ways that we can think about God as being the God of peace. And, and, and one of those is, is this. Uh, take, take a moment to reflect on the fact that God is a God of peace for us as believers, but that is not something that we should take for granted. Uh, I was struck this morning... You know, every time um, Caleb Brown is invited to preach, he'll pull me over after the morning service after John has preached and he'll say, well, I'm not sure that I need to get up there and preach tonight because John just preached my sermon. (laughs) That's the way that the Holy Spirit works. And it's wonderful, isn't it, that the Spirit reinforces the messages that we that we hear again and again. But but tonight I, I want you to be struck by the fact that we can call God the God of peace only because we are united to Christ, his son. You see, apart from being united to Christ by faith, we cannot call God the God of peace because if we are separated from Christ, we remain alienated from Christ. We remain under the wrath of God, the condemnation of God. We are strangers to the covenants of promise and we are, as Scripture calls, the enemies of God. And so I want you to be struck for a moment by the fact that, listen, you get to call the God of the universe the God of peace. He is our God of peace because we are united to Christ by faith. Immediately when I read this, I thought of Romans 5.1. What does Paul tell us in Romans 5.1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. And I I got so animated with my students. I was telling them, listen, you don't understand how magnificent that is. That we have peace with the God of the universe. Because, And I said, you don't understand how amazing that is because you don't know how terrible the opposite is. You, you don't understand, you don't understand the magnitude of being under the wrath of God and being under the law of God as opposed to being under the spirit and being free from condemnation. As again, we, we, we can only understand the good news when we've understood the bad news. And the bad news is that the, the most horrible place that we can be, the most terrifying place that we can be, as Jonathan Edwards would say, a spider dangling over the fire of eternity is under the wrath of God. But the most blessed place, the most happy place, the most joyous place that we can be is being united to Christ, being under the spirit, being there under the household of God and being able to call out to God, Abba, Father, and to call him the God of peace. But we need to be struck by that. We need to be struck by that because otherwise, right, the opposite is who, who, who else is getting crushed with Satan? All those who are members of Satan, right? Those are the only two options of Scripture. Either we are of God or we are not. Those are the only two options that Scripture gives. And so how, how, how wonderful, how wonderful it is as believers to be able to call God the God of peace. 
And it points again to what we heard this morning. The only reason that we can call God the God of peace is because Christ satisfied the wrath of God. So that now there is no condemnation for us. There is only pardon and reconciliation and relationship and communion. Praise God. But we can also understand this title here in this sense. That God, because he is the God of peace, he also provides us then with his peace. In the midst of circumstances and situations that are far from peaceful. In Isaiah 26 verse 3, right, we're told. That, that God keeps the one in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him. The most peaceful place that we can be in the midst of a very uh, uh, not peaceful world is uh, understanding that we are in the arms of the sovereign God. That is the most peaceful and wonderful place that we can be. In Philippians 4, right, we're told that, that God provides for us a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that the world can't understand. And so we can understand here that Paul is using this title of God to encourage us in this, that while the world around us may be swirling with with rage and chaos, we can have peace and we can have confidence as believers because our God is the God of peace and he provides us with his peace. The immediate context, in fact, of this passage is strife and division and contention in the church. And so I think what Paul is also addressing here is this, that that amidst that dissension and amidst that chaos and amidst the the intrusion of false teachers uh, into the church, we can have peace knowing that God will provide that peace for us and he will particularly provide it in the crushing of wickedness and the destruction and removal and demolition of wickedness. So God provides us with his peace. The last point I think I want to make about this Uh, title, God of Peace, is this, that God will bring about peace. You and I know this week is evidence, and our lives are evidence, that now is not the time of perfect peace. Now is the time of death and sickness and struggle and strife and injustice. Now is the time of brokenness. We live in a broken world. We know that to be true. But this passage here gives us such confidence Such assurance that the God of peace will bring about his peace. The the framework of the Old Testament, if you go back and look, it's moving towards this concept or idea of perfect rest and peace. Think of, uh, this will probably be more than you want to know, but I'm I'm, I'm pulling from my uh, Joshua to Esther class this past semester. And we talked significantly about this concept of the land. Right, the promised land, a, a frequent promise and theme throughout the Old Testament. The people were earnestly looking forward to the promised land because they, they understood it to be a place of perpetual rest and peace where God would bring them into that state of peace. But what they didn't yet realize and what we have the great privilege of knowing now is that land itself was just a type that pointed to a greater land and a better country where we will enjoy perfect peace. And that's the new heavens and the new earth which Christ himself will usher in. And that will be a realm of perfect peace. We will have rest from enemies. We will be free from sin. Satan will be vanquished. That will be the perfect realm of peace. God will usher in that peace. He will bring it about. And so we can have confidence in that fact in reading this verse. The God of peace will bring his peace about. The second part of this verse that I want you to note is really the main action of this verse, which is this, that the God of peace will crush Satan. 
Amen. The God of peace will crush Satan. This is the promise of all promises in Scripture. It points back, it's a direct reference back to Genesis chapter 3, in which we are told that the offspring of the woman will crush, will bruise, will stamp upon, will stomp on the head of the serpent. This is, the, I think, the preeminent promise of Scripture. And, and, and this is the golden thread that, that works its way through all of Scripture here. Satan will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. The deceiver shall be silenced. The lion shall have his teeth broken and he will be torn apart. The great serpent, we're told in Revelation, shall be cast down and cast into the fires of hell. This is the substance of our hope. Satan will be defeated. God will crush him. He will destroy the spiritual forces of evil that wage war against him and against his kingdom and against us in this life. And notice the certainty of Paul here. He's not guessing. He's not saying, we think that God will at some point, at some time, maybe crush Satan. He says with certainty, the God of peace will crush Satan. This is the promise of Scripture. It is the promise that God will have the victory. He will have the victory. Satan cannot win. Satan will not win. The day of victory and triumph is near at hand. And I I think we need to remember this in our daily struggles, in our strivings, when we're teaching a classroom full of unruly uh, children, when we're dealing with um, the impatient shrieks of our one-year-old son, (laughs) when we're fighting against temptation, when we really don't want to forgive that person who wronged us, we need to remember the victory that Christ has already won, but the victory that is still coming when the great serpent will be utterly cast down. Because I think that this hope will utterly transform the way that we live. I really do. I think when we can look at the circumstances of our lives and the individual interactions from this cosmic viewpoint, it will transform the way uh, that, we, that we carry out our lives and the way that we live our lives. But it gets better. It's like Billy Mays. But wait, there's more. Right? This crushing of Satan uh, is not only done by the God of peace, but look, this was so striking to me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul is speaking to the saints here in Rome, and he says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, this gave me some pause for a moment, because when we think of the crushing of the head of the serpent, when we think of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, we think of Christ. Scripture points to Christ as the champion, right? You are not David who slays Goliath, the great serpent. That's Christ, right? We understand this. But so that when we get to this verse here and we see, uh, oh, the crushing of Satan's head, okay, we expect then that that crushing and that action is going to be done by Christ. But notice he says here that Satan will be crushed under your feet. Now, it's the God of peace who's doing it. He's the one who's acting in this verse. But notice that Satan is being crushed under our feet. Well, what's going on here? How, how, how should we understand this? Well, I think what, what Paul's doing here is he's referencing something that he's, he's kind of built uh, and established throughout all his epistles. And, and, and that is uh, the doctrine of our union with Christ. In seminary, they asked us at the end of our Pauline epistles class, what, what is the center of Paul? What do you think is at the center of Paul's theology? What is the primary theological theme of Paul's letters? And, and we came to the conclusion as a class, and I did personally as well, that the center of Paul's theology is this, union with Christ. 
in Christ. And if you go back, and I have, I've done so, I've highlighted. If you go back, look at particularly Ephesians and just highlight how many times it says in Christ, in Christ. So I think that what Paul's getting at here is this, that, be, that when we're united to Christ by faith, we become so uh, intertwined with him that his redemptive accomplishments become our own. So that Christ's triumph over Satan is your triumph over Satan. So that Christ's crushing of the head of the serpent is your crushing of the head of the serpent. And and Paul gives us plenty of examples where, where, where this is true. This is from William Hendrickson's commentary. But let me just give you some of these references briefly. In Romans 8.17, we're uh, described as suffering with Christ. In Romans 6, we're described as being crucified with Christ. We're described as dying with him. We're described as being buried with him. In Colossians 2.13, we're described as being made alive with him, raised to new life with him. Romans 8.17, we're called joint heirs with Christ. It's said that we're glorified with Christ. Then Colossians 3.1 says that we're enthroned with Christ. And then 2 Timothy 2 and Revelation 20 say that we will reign with Christ forever. That is union with Christ. That everything that Christ accomplishes is our accomplishment as well. Not because we did it, but because Christ did it in and through us. This is what Paul's getting at when he says in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, brothers and sisters, we have the great privilege of stomping on the head of Satan. In our everyday lives, when you, when you put temptation to flight, you're stomping on the head of Satan. When you pursue reconciliation with a brother that hurts you, you're stomping on the head of Satan. When you love your spouse in the midst of a disagreement, you're stomping on the head of Satan. When you share the gospel with your neighbor, you're stomping on the head of Satan. When you're putting your, your flesh and your sinful nature to death, you are stomping on the head of Satan. These things that seem like mundane, everyday things that we do, you don't realize that it's a, there's a cosmic battle going on. And we get to participate in the victory of Christ. And as he lives and works in and through us, we have the great privilege of mightily conquering. It's Romans 8, right? Mightily conquering and stomping on the head of Satan in the surety of Christ, in the power of Christ. We get to boast in his victory. And so I know those daily occurrences may not feel like spectacular cosmic events, but the next time you have an opportunity to sin, I want you to treat it like a battle. I want you to treat it like an opportunity to just stomp on the head of Satan and see how that might shift your vision and expand that moment where you'll realize that this is about so much more than a disagreement or a particular injustice that's been done to me. It is so much more. This, this is in many respects the mission of the church as a whole. This is the mission and task that we've been given to, to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaim Christ's victory over Satan. In Matthew 16, right, we're, we're told that, that, that Satan and his forces in the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now listen, in, in terms of military terms, when you think about it, okay, gates don't, gates don't fight. What do gates do? Gates hold in. It's a, it's a fortress. And so I, I think captured in that image is not only the sense of uh, souls are going to, we're going to win in our fight against Satan, but I also think that the image is we're going to storm the gates of hell and those gates will not hold. 
Because in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the great privilege of, of not, not by our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit working in and through us, of, of, of rescuing souls out from behind the gates of hell. So I want to commend you to storm the gates and stomp the serpent. Storm the gates and stomp the serpent. In your, in your conversations with, with neighbors and friends and people that don't know the Lord, understand that what's going on there is a cosmic battle. And you have, the, you have the victory. You have the victory already. I want to think about this the next time we're standing in front of those men at the anchorage. It's a cosmic battle going on. And we will have the victory. I want to think of this the next time I'm, uh, I, I'm tempted not to share the gospel with my neighbor. I want to think of this the next time I'm in the classroom and I'm just trying to read scripture over voices that are clamoring and rebellious hearts that don't want to hear it. I want to remember the the cosmic reality of what's going on. And I want to remember that we're promised the victory through Christ. We cannot fail. We will not fail. Because Christ has already triumphed. And we will triumph in and through him. So, brothers and sisters, stomp on. Stomp on. Stomp on with hope in your hearts. Stomp on with steadfastness. Stomp on knowing that none of your work, none of your labors... Nothing that you do in the name of the Lord is done in vain. His purposes will advance. The serpent will be crushed and he will be crushed under our feet. What a privilege. The last thing I want to say this evening is this. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet soon. Now, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that while we we go on crushing Satan's head in our faithfulness each day that the ultimate defeat of Satan has not yet come, that there is still a great battle to be won. There is still a great day ahead when the serpent will be finally cast down, but that great day is not yet here. But we have hope. We have hope that Christ has already won the victory, that death has been swallowed up in that victory. And so that we, we, we know that when Satan time, Satan's time has come, And at the end, at at, at that great battle, the serpent will be cast down and we will be victorious and we will reign with Christ for all eternity. That day is soon coming. I've said to you many times that the Apostle Paul believed it would happen in his own day. And I think so should we. We should also have this understanding and have this daily hope that Christ and the God of peace will soon crush Satan. So don't give up. I know you're tired. I know it's been a hard week, but don't give up. Keep laboring. Keep stomping. Take heart. Christ has overcome this world, though you will have troubles in it, and his return is imminent. Press on through your suffering and trials. You're suffering for faithfulness. It's not just suffering in terms of persecution. It's the, it's the daily battle to pursue faithfulness over and against the desires of the flesh. That's suffering for Christ as well. Be steadfast and immovable and know the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let's pray. What hope this gives us, Lord. Reflecting on your victory over Satan and sin. Father, I pray that you would motivate us in, in, in moments that we may think are insignificant to remember, Lord, that our hope is expansive. 
that, Lord, all of history and every moment that is a part of that is moving towards this final and culminating day when all that is evil and wrong shall be made right, when every injustice will be righted, when all sin will be wiped away, when the great serpent will be finally and forever defeated. Lord, would you encourage us in that hope to continue to pursue everyday faithfulness, expand our vision, and remind us of the victory of Christ, who every day will triumph in and through us. Help us, Lord, to stomp on in steadfastness until that day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.